fellow here at the Cato Institute and an associate professor at the Shar School of Policy and Government at George Mason University. Uh, thanks for joining us tonight here in the Hike Auditorium. And to everyone online, welcome to you as well. Uh, start off with a big thanks to the uh, conference team who, as usual, have things running like a German railroad around here. Uh, I appreciate the great turnout. Uh, people are still coming in. I'm excited for a fantastic discussion tonight. Uh, I am joined this evening by five just absolutely wonderful foreign policy thinkers, writers, teachers, and doers. Um, in, in order here to my left, we have Kate Kaiser, uh, Policy Director at Win Without War. Uh, Adam Mount, Senior Fellow and Director of the Defense Posture Project at the Federation of American Scientists. Lauren DeYoung Schulman, Deputy Director of Studies and the Leon E. Panetta Fellow at the Center for New American Security. Mina Ayazi, Manager for Policy and Communications at the Alliance for Peacebuilding. And Dan Naxon, an associate, soon to be full professor at Georgetown University. Um, I encourage everyone to check out um, their Twitter feeds or mine if you want links to all of their stuff. I can promise you will learn a lot. Um, a couple of housekeeping notes as we get going here. <clears throat> I've asked each of the panelists uh, to start us off, set the table, if you will, um, about seven or eight minutes of remarks, um, what they see as the big challenges, issues, opportunities for advocates of progressive foreign policy, and some of the basic principles they think should be guiding it. Um, and we'll follow that with what I am sure will be vigorous discussion. I'll probably lob the first grenade or two using my moderator's privilege, uh, but there will be lots, lots of time for Q&A. After the panel at 6.30, we invite you to join us in the Winter Garden uh, for some munchies and our event's signature cocktail, Peace on the Rocks. <laughs> Those of you who were here for an earlier um, uh, session will know that uh, our evil mixologist, uh, James Knupp, uh, is, is, is so good, the last drink, finger on the button, still has people talking. Um, so you're not going to want to miss this one. Uh, okay, so three, three Januarys ago, in 2017, we hosted an event uh, that we called uh, Debating the Trump Doctrine. And the goal was to crowdsource what we knew or thought we knew about what Trump's foreign policy was going to look like. No one was quite sure what to expect, lots of ideas, but everyone was pretty sure that things would look <clears throat> quite different. That was a safe bet. Um, since then, obviously, there's been an outpouring of commentary uh, about the substance and the conduct of Trump's foreign policy, much of it from this building. Uh, and in a brief glimmer of bipartisanship, I think it's fair to say that many foreign policy observers, both left and right, agree that Trump himself is a sign that the United States needs a new direction for foreign policy. But I think there's also widespread agreement that that new vision should not be Trumpian. Um, but the question then remains, what Specifically, should that new direction be? Now, about a year ago, <clears throat> my Cato colleague Emma Ashford and I wrote a piece for War on the Rocks that took stock of the foreign policy debates happening on both sort of left and right. And our sense at the time was that despite sort of a lot of agreement about the need for a new direction, that neither side had figured out really what was next. Um, and we identified six questions that I'd sort of like to outline uh, that I think both sides need to answer, anyone with a vision for foreign policy needs to answer at least these six questions um, if, if they want to do things right. So first, first big question, should the United States continue to pursue primacy and really attempt to control events around the world, or should it accept that the world is becoming more multipolar, difficult to control, and be somewhat less ambitious? 
Second question, should the United States continue to rely as heavily as it has on military intervention? Uh, or should it seek uh, more often to use non-military tools of foreign policy to deal with terrorism, civil war, and other issues? Third question, should the United States pursue a foreign policy aimed at spreading liberal values, human rights, democracy, uh, or is such an approach, in fact, somehow uh, contrary to America's national interests? Fourth question, should the United States embrace uh, multilateralism and enhance its alliances, um, or uh, pursue, as Trump has done, a somewhat more unilateral foreign policy? Five, should the United States seek to strengthen and expand the global system of free trade, or continue, as Trump has done, to pursue more nationalist and protectionist trade policies? And finally, sort of one country-specific question, what about China? Should the United States accept <clears throat> China's growing strength and, and allow uh, a Chinese sphere of influence in Asia, uh, or should the United States attempt to contain, confront, and undermine Chinese power. 2020, big year for these things. I, we should get some clarity uh, as to what the Democrats are going to rule out. Um, but I don't think um, we've seen the answers uh, coalesce quite yet. Foreign policy hasn't played, I don't think, a huge role in the debate so far among the Democrats. But um, from some of the work I've done, I think at least I see three clusters uh, on the Democratic side when it comes to foreign policy. And the first, I think the first group is led by Joe Biden, and I think Biden represents sort of the standard, traditional Washington liberal internationalist kind of bipartisan consensus of days gone by, uh, a fairly ambitious global vision, a heavy reliance on military uh, force, military intervention, more or less status quo before Trump. A second cluster of mostly younger Democrats, I think, um, sort of occupies what I think of as the millennial liberal internationalist group. And I think of Pete Buttigieg here as the sort of the poster child for this group. Um, I think they look a lot like Biden's version of internationalism, but a little bit less ambitious about America's role in the world, and certainly quite a lot less confident in the military intervention component of American foreign policy. And then finally, we have the progressive internationalists. I made up that name. I don't know if anyone calls themselves that in the progressive wing, but I'm just going to go out and call them that. Um, and I think you know, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren um, are these uh, the sort of the, the you know, card-carrying members of this group. They both, I think, have been articulating ambitious visions for America's role in the world uh, to be a global force for good, if you will. Um, but I think their, their goals um, look quite a bit different from the ones Trump has been pursuing or even the ones that Obama pursued before him. Um, and I, th I do think, at least as far as I read the tea leaves, that they want to pursue these ambitious goals with far less emphasis on military means. Um, you know, I don't know about you guys watching the campaign, um, but so far, I guess my feeling is that Biden seems like, um, and I'm not trying to insult anyone here, this is, you know, but he feels like the baby boomer's last stand on the Democratic Party. I mean, you know, okay, boomer, it's time for your foreign policy to take a hike, right? I mean, I'm, and this is mostly research coming from my kids. I talked to my kids who are all, you know, <coughs> lefties, and, and they, they're, just not, they're just not feeling Joe. Um, I think it's pretty clear that for the last many years, most of the energy on foreign policy among, on the left has been from the progressive internationalist camp. And so I think... Whether or not Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren wins the nomination, I think that progressive foreign policy views are going to heavily influence uh, the direction that the Democratic Party takes um, you know, now and, and in the future. So it's a very good time 
to have this panel. Um, and so, you know, this is what I'm hoping to find out tonight. Where do progressives want to take U.S. foreign policy? How are they going to deal with these big issues? What are the divisions and debates among progressives over these issues? And I think also one you know, final really important question is, how are they going to get the American people to sign up for the ride? And so with that, Kate, take it away. Great. That's not difficult at all, this challenge. Um, thanks, Trevor, for inviting me um, and having me as part of this discussion. I think it's very timely. Um, you know, maybe you're used to debates on the conservative side of the aisle, little c, of course. Um, but I actually think this primary has been quite fruitful in terms of a debate on foreign policy that we actually haven't seen in the past, um, which I'm really grateful for because it's beyond time that we're having this debate about what the United States' role in the world is. Um, so to kind of take a step back, I think, from the campaign, I work for Win Without War, which is a national grassroots advocacy organization. So we actively work with the public to get them to care about foreign policy and advocate for a more constructive, humane foreign policy for the United States. And our work is really based within the progressive movement itself. Um, folks at, who are talking about Medicare for All, the Green New Deal, um, really kind of bold structural changes to our society to really seek this world that's based in justice, safety, um, and solidarity with all. Um, across the United States, and I think that's where we start in terms of defining a progressive foreign policy, is what do progressive values say about the United States' role in the world? And the reality is, is that those values aren't just applied to within our borders. It has to go beyond the water's edge. Um, and so I think it's really taking, breaking down the divide between domestic and international policy, understanding that there's a clear feedback loop between these two, what has seen, particularly in Washington, is two distinct sets of policy expertise. Um, and for us, rather than saying, well, we're going to have this specific policy for China versus Egypt, et cetera, we really come at this from a set of organizing principles that are rooted in progressive values um, to determine what the policy prescription should be for the United States. Um, and I've written about this before, thanks to Lauren, who commissioned a piece for me almost a year ago um, that lays out five principles. Um, and those are solidarity, safety, self-determination, equality, and justice. And I think they're useful organizing principles because they also lead to very specific um, policy prescriptions. Um, and when I, we talk about safety, which I think is a key um, principle for actually rethinking how we conduct foreign policy, you see on the campaign trail different candidates talking about, well, we're, our role is to secure the American people to keep us safe. And while that may be true, the way we think about security is actually the fact that we are safer here in the United States if we're helping other people around the world become safe as well. And so it, it takes a much more expansive view on how what we do here at home reflects abroad and vice versa. So we cannot expect to be safe here if we are going around the world and bombing other countries in the name of security, ultimately, because other people are being made less safe at the cost of our safety. Similarly, in solidarity, um, progressives want to work transnationally with other social movements who believe in the same thing. And I think it's important to have this discussion on these terms, because when people talk about democracy and human rights, they because of the Bush, um, George W. Bush administration, those have really become terms that are seen as negative around the world. And for good reason, 
in terms of the way he tried to implement that vision, um, which was ultimately for the purpose of economic exploitation of others around the world. When we talk about solidarity, we talk about the fact that other people around the world have similar aspirations that we all do. We all want to live in safety. We all want to have the right to determine what our future looks like. We want to provide for our families. We want to have opportunities to decide what, how we want to live our lives. And ultimately, those are fundamental desires that the United States has a facilitation role to play, not dictating those terms, but using the, our levers of power to help others actually fulfill um, those aspirations. So bringing it back to the campaign, I'm not sure how much time I have, so I'm going to try to keep this short. I'm happy to answer questions. Um, but I think what we're seeing in terms of progressive foreign policy, I think you know the camps that Trevor laid out are accurate, but I actually think there's a real debate with amongst the progressives on foreign policy. Um, I think that there is, a, and I'm sure Adam will speak to this, but there's really different camps within progressivism um, when we talk about international policy. There's um, the camp that I would say is more embodied by Senator Elizabeth Warren, who talks, she is a progressive, she talks in very progressive terms, she is adamant about how what we do here at home affects how the rule of law functions abroad. Um, she wants to end our endless wars um, around the world, which I'm there with her. Um, but I think the framing of how she talks about these things, I think some of her organizing principles still remain rooted in this idea of American exceptionalism, where at the end of the day, it's about American interests that should drive what we should do in the world. Whereas someone like Senator Bernie Sanders is really thinking about across borders, what can we do transnationally to empower social movements to work together in the reality that we're living in a global society and ultimately the security challenges we face are all global in nature. Um, and so the they both talk about how the climate crisis should really be an organizing principle for our foreign policy in the next administration, but they have different ways of talking about how they would address that. Um, both emphasize multilateralism, both emphasize a Green New Deal for the United States, um, but I think the way they would actually approach and maybe implement and execute that would be a little bit different based on how they think about things. And while both are for cutting the Pentagon's budget, for example, um, there seems to be, Senator Warren in her recent piece at The Atlantic seems to question less the idea of military alliances um, and the idea that terrorism should be a thing that should motivate us to use our military might, even if it's in the form of partners. Whereas I think Senator Sanders actually takes a step back and is like, well, there's not a really a military solution there and we should be investing in things like diplomacy and development and peace building. And while I think Senator Warren would ultimately support those things, I think there's a, a less bold questioning of kind of the military tools of statecraft, um, even if she wants to really bolster it with economic tools and diplomatic tools. Um, and so it's a really important debate. And I think like we, all of us need to be real about the differences and have these conversations because this is really the first primary where these debates are happening. And so it's still a very young debate. And there's a lot of people who care about foreign policy across the United States, um, but Washington often doesn't listen to those people. And so a challenge I think we have is how can we get regular people to see the connections between the domestic and international um, and how it affects their lives to make them care about these things. And I 
think if we talk about foreign policy in terms of values and what drives us, regular people do care and they understand it and it's a much less complicated conversation. Fantastic. Adam. Wonderful. Uh, thanks so much to Trevor and to Cato for putting this on. Uh, as Kate mentioned, it is still a very young debate. Uh, progressive foreign policy thought has uh, been around for over a century, but applying it to the challenges that we face today, it, we're really just getting started, learning about the divisions, debating uh, specific uh, solutions in different bins and buckets amongst ourselves. And so I, I would just applaud Kate's work, Dan Nexon's work. Um, from my view, they wrote, I think, the two best pieces on progressive foreign policy so far at CNAS and at Foreign Affairs, respectively. Um, so it's a, it's a great honor to, to, share, to share the stage. Uh, I, I agree with so much of Kate's breakdown and, and loved her piece so much. Um, I think it's exactly right to say that progressivism is a distinctive political movement on the political left that's distinct from centrism. It's certainly distinct from conservatism and neoconservatism. Um, but it's marked by a, an interest in producing structural change uh, in government institutions domestically, um, but also a structural change in how we think about our place in the world in order to advantage the most vulnerable and the least fortunate in domestic society, society and international society. So progressivism is really trying to, it, it's really imbued with a set of particular values uh, and, and moral values that adherence to progressivism believe very deeply. Um, many progressives are sort of personally uh, ashamed or appalled at the influence that the United States often has at the world. And then frustrated that so often America seems to be fueling the very trends that we end up resisting and fighting against, that we send soldiers and diplomats abroad to combat in terms of international international economic inequality, um, corruption, increasingly authoritarian trends, um, arms proliferation and arms races, uh, to say nothing of climate change. Uh, it, it, there's this deep frustration and deep um, uh, displeasure uh, with our, our role in the world. And so progressives have uh, a, a particular set of morals that I think is critical for thinking about foreign affairs. Uh, specifically, for me, what it means to be a progressive is to care about the rights and the welfare of citizens in foreign countries as they themselves understand them. So it's a commitment to the uh, welfare and what a capabilities theorist like Martha Nussbaum or Amartya Sen would call the capabilities of foreign citizens, their ability to lead full lives as they themselves understand them. And so that latter amendment is actually crucial here because it helps distinguish a progressive from a neoconservative who says that essentially a neoconservative is trying to export a parochial sense of what it means to lead a good life, an American sense of what it leads what it means to lead a good life. And a progressive says there are shared standards for a full life uh, that all human beings are entitled to by virtue of their common humanity. And it's those that a progressive should be interested in promoting even across borders. And that that's what's required to build the kind of strong societies that form the context for a healthy, prosperous, and just America at home. And so I think Kate's exactly right to say there are two sort of camps of progressivism. Uh, the way that I've been breaking it down is to say there's a camp 
that we can call solidarist progressives that think that our moral obligation to advance the rights and the welfare of other foreign citizens is to act in solidarity with egalitarian political movements around the world. On the other hand, you might think that there are liberal progressives who think that in order to best advance the rights and the welfare of people around the world, you advance a, a universal concept of human rights with the consent and in collaboration with the citizens whose rights you're trying to protect and advance. Uh, and the, I think the best part of Kate's piece, for my mind, in CNAS is this emphasis on uh, consent, solidarity, collaboration with local groups and organizations. For progressives, I think that's at the very core of uh, how, how they plan to operate in the world. And the reason is, uh, without that, you risk slipping into neoconservatism, dictating to groups how they ought to behave, uh, a sort of dictating to them what a, a full and prosperous life constitutes, and, and, and not uh, uh, reflecting and lifting up their values and their interests. Uh, and so this has a wide range of uh, implications. I, I think the, the difference between two types of progressives comes into sharp relief over things like humanitarian intervention, yeah. where uh, the, the risk with solidarist progressivism is that you start to conceive of sovereignty as self-determination, which is a legitimate moral principle. Uh, and, and, and so intervention in... Uh, for example, conflicts where it's a humanitarian crisis that's a result of a natural disaster might be all good and well for a solidarist progressive. But when it's a government repressing the rights and the welfare of their own citizens, uh, it gets much more difficult for them to authorize or support intervention. For a liberal progressive, there's, I think, much more willingness and uh, interest in uh, applying American influence, force, uh, if necessary, uh, in order to protect the rights and citizens from their own governments. Uh, and, and so the, the contrast, the sort of the risk with solidarist progressivism is that you end up doing too little abroad. You end up saying uh, the best that the United States can do for the rights and the welfare of foreign citizens is to get out of the way. I think that's a bit of a contradiction in terms because progressives don't believe that about the federal government where they think that there's a, a role for regulation, uh, poverty alleviation, social programs in the domestic context. And so I think part of what it means to be a progressive is to believe that America can still serve as a force for good in the world and must. And so to the extent that uh, solidarist progressivism ends up retreating from the world into a sort of left isolationism, I don't think there are national political figures who are less left isolationists, but heaven knows that there's a segment of the electorate that does sort of conform to that view. To the extent that that happens, I think you start to vitiate your progressive credentials. Uh, and it's a sort of distinctive political ideology and political context. But I'll end where Kate uh, started and then ended, which is to say it, it really is a young movement. And there really is so much work to be done here about proposing and contrasting different concepts of uh, policy, developing concrete plans, tackling these really hard practical questions that too often progressives just sort of want to raise their, wave their hands at and ignore. 
So progressives dispositionally are uncomfortable working in military strategy, defense policy, budgeting issues, where Lauren excels and wrote a wonderful piece for TNSR to try to tackle. That's crucial for progressives, because if you're trying to reduce defense spending, you've got to explain how the United States can still meet its obligations to foreign citizens to protect them from foreign aggression uh, or interference, uh, from including occasionally from great powers. But to articulate a, a proposal for how to do that defensively, that doesn't fuel arms races, that is at sustainable cost, and uh, is done with the support and the consent of your allies and partners that you're working with. There's so many of these practical challenges that progressives have barely started to tackle. And so I know we'll talk about many more of them, them today. But I think the, important, the, the most important uh, recommendation is uh, it's, it's a young debate. There's so much more that has to be done and so much more of specificity that we've got to get clear on the principles that underwrite this movement, but also have to get to work on a, on a very concrete plan of action. All right, you set me up brilliantly for my discussion, which is to kind of take on this, uh, this question or this challenge of this being a very young field or a young debate that the two of you mentioned, and go in a different direction than the you two are, or, well, all the folks on stage are better suited to that in terms of talking about principles. I want to talk about what it means to be a progressive foreign policy professional. Because I uh, grew up as in this field as a technocrat. I worked in government uh, for 10 years. I work in the think tank right now. And most of the public dialogue I see on the topic of being a progressive in foreign policy is very negative. If you have done X thing, you are not a progressive. In my case, if you, I have worked at Department of Defense. I work at a bipartisan think tank right now. There's all kinds of Twitter discussion about the fact that I am a lot of bad words, but definitely not a progressive anyway because I have worked in those fields. That's fine. But then what does it mean to actually be a progressive who works in foreign policy who as a professional field? What does that definition look like? How do you be, field build in a way that gets a group of people who are able to work on these issues day to day in think tanks, in government, in a lot of other fields beyond just the folks on the stage? And I think a lot of this debate helps fuel that. But I want to talk a little bit about how progressives can infiltrate the foreign policy field and professionalize it in a way that really exemplifies their values in a way. So my background in terms of defining what a profession means is probably a little different than what a lot of folks in the room do on a day-to-day -day basis. It's very military-centric. Um, there is a military ethicist named Pauline shanks Karin. Uh, she works at the Naval War College. She defines a profession in the following way. It is a body of expert knowledge on which basis the public accords certain privileges in exchange for an understanding that members of the profession will self-regulate and operate for the common or public good with an underlying sense of shared norms and shared practices. OK, so we're going to go through each of those to see what are the weaknesses in the foreign policy field and what progressives could do, depending on their perspective on each of these principles we've talked about, to professionalize them in a way that makes them more comfortable and productive and a better place to work as a progressive. All right, so first of all, knowledge. Overall, um, I think it's fair to say that expert knowledge is sort of accumulated in the foreign policy field, but I would not describe foreign policy as being a uh, deliberative or consistent learning um, or uh, field in any way. Um, if I were to break down knowledge in a few different ways, it would be probably training, knowledge sharing, and a professional learning culture. So just briefly on training and knowledge sharing. 
In training, so I've taught at Georgetown, I've taught at GW, I've guest lectured at a lot of different schools today. The progressive principles that we're talking about for foreign policy are not part of that core curriculum, I would say, large, large portions of the time. It's a very kind of liberal internationalist or even technocratic debate about what it means to be a foreign policy professional. Building the knowledge and doing the writing and doing the teaching that needs to be part of uh, infiltrate, infiltrating, I'm using this kind of negative word, into these schools, into these debates where students are thinking about what does it mean and what do they want to build as their career is crucial for progressives. Second element of that is knowledge sharing. Um, there's been a lot of, I think, over the last few years, really productive collaborations between what I would say are nonpartisan or bipartisan research organizations and more progressive or left-leaning institutions. That is a critical step in order to get that kind of mutual recognition and respect and speak to one another's languages in a way that I think helps advance progressive values, even if it feels like a kind of, if not a step back, then a step in place at the time. But the most important part of knowledge where I think progressives can make progress in terms of professionalizing the field is in establishing a professional learning culture. Foreign policy, as I've worked in it, the Department of Defense and the Department of State, does a lot of writing, does a lot of fact-finding, does a lot of summarizing what they did. They don't do a lot of recognizing what those lessons learned were and incorporating them back into what the field should do going forward. The military gets a lot of credit for its lessons learned culture. It's very tactically focused. It's not strategically focused, and it doesn't usually share those lessons across the broader foreign policy field. The rest of the US government does not have this culture at all, as much as they might so desire to. There's an absence of regular self-assessment, and there's a, a common reticence to share and examine failures, especially at the top. This is something that I sense that a lot of the national security institutions want to change. Progressives, in advocating for um, Professors in this field should advocate for and build formal government structure and a robust culture of learning. And there's lots of ways to do that, but it takes really concrete organization, uh, really concrete recommendations, strategies, and people in the right place to make sure that it happens. Second criteria for building a profession is uh, the public accords it certain privileges. All right, so foreign policy practitioners, they get certain privileges from the public to develop and execute foreign policy. But democratic oversight of this field, I think we would all agree, is not so great. And trust of the foreign policy field is probably even worse. Government institutions overall, I think most folks know, are some of the least trusted organizations in the United States. Military institutions, national security institutions are on the far left, also incredibly uh, low trust. Foreign policy progressives should develop not only policy, but mechanisms to help earn that trust. And that's going to take time, whether that be better congressional oversight of foreign policy, including on use of force, I think most importantly, declassification, more transparency, more communication with the American people about what foreign policy does with them. Third element is self-regulation. Stephen Walt says it's not clear what a member in good standing would have to do in order to not be welcome at CFR. Foreign policy is a field that does not self-regulate. We welcome everybody with open arms. It doesn't matter what you have done in any way, shape, or form. I think this is, again, something that makes the field very uncomfortable. They don't know, including myself, what do you do with those lines on your resume that you know were a failure, but you worked on, and everyone just sort of awkwardly dances around it. The military has uh, its own courts, its own system of ethics, and its own kind of administrative criteria for how you deal with folks you do wrong in some way. Foreign policy doesn't have that. And I'm not saying that we should necessarily build, build that, but we should have better conversations about professional standards of what does it mean to actually work in this field? And what do you do? What do we do with someone who does wrong, whether by accident on, well, hopefully not on purpose, but with, with knowledge of the, the consequences of their actions? Next criteria is operating for the common good. 
So on this, I go back to some of my design thinking principles. So I apologize, very consulty. Who is your customer when you work in foreign policy? When you're a technocrat, it's really difficult to define. You might say it's U.S. national interest. You might say it's the Constitution, the President, the U.S. Congress, the American people, the people that you are working with uh, in a partnership relationship overseas. The point being, it's very ill-defined, even when we say things like U.S. national interest, like what a way to stop debate. That doesn't mean much to anybody in terms of really concrete specificity. The conversation you guys are having right now in terms of who it is that foreign policy professionals should be working for and toward, that happens so little when you're in that situation room, and those conversations need to be infiltrated as much as possible. Get your research as you going. Next criteria is last one that I will speak to, and this is my favorite one, is that the underlying storm, uh, shared norms, ethics, and practices. Okay, so people know that I love process. Foreign policy veterans love to talk about the execution of their craft. There is a way to do business, and heaven forbid if you violate any of their weird little rules about how you set up a meeting or how you organize a table. But what they don't realize and they don't talk about that I firmly believe is those processes are underwritten by values, even if they're not thinking about it on a day-to-day -day basis. Progressives should learn those processes but also understand the values that are associated with them so they can uh, build them, help them grow, and address them to a more progressive orientation. So meticulous record keeping. God knows we take a lot of notes in foreign policy meetings. This empowers the government to learn from its mistakes if it actually reads them in any way. This is a good foundation for progressive thought. Free and truthful and responsive engagement with the American media, it fosters a free press. How many pieces have been written about this in the, in the Trump administration? Progressives can move on this value, or sorry, take advantage of this value to expand beyond the mainstream media such that we are engaging not just with them, but with the American people, with the partners we work with overseas, overseas and with foreign populations. Deliberative and thoughtful decision making. Gosh, we love to have meetings in foreign policy. Particularly in matters of war and peace. How many meetings did the Obama administration have on Syria? But we weren't talking about the costs and risks that we should have been talking about in those. It comes down to how many troops is it, it, does it require, how much is it going to cost us in terms of uh, dollars, and maybe at best, what is it that we're not going to be able to do? We don't talk about it in cost of civilian lives. We don't talk about it in opportunity cost of what we could do in America. Progressives should be part of those conversations and help uh, bring their own views on what matters most into those deliberative, th deliberative thought, process, thought processes. And then I'll close with the, the one that Adam just mentioned, the ritual of building the defense budget. We're building three defense budgets at a time at any one point in the year in the de Department of Defense. For the most part, this is a technocratic debate. And for the most part in my career, I did not see progressives in any shape or form engaged in this in a way except to say the defense budget is too large. Progressives should be at a part of establishing what are the challenges we should be preparing for. Do we need to incorporate climate change in our thought process? Humanitarian relief, or should that be a priority that we're building military capability toward? What are the plausible scenarios that we're actually using these defense capabilities? Being a part of that ritual of uh, building the defense budget is absolutely vital for progressives to get their values heard in these, in these situations. So bottom line, use our progressive value discussion we're having up here to infiltrate the foreign policy field and professionalize it. And I'll move on from my insurgency there. <laughs> um, thank you, Trevor, for hosting this and having me. And thank you to Kate, Adam, and Morton for really setting the playing field of what 
the current progressive foreign policy field looks like and what it will look like in the future. I think as we talk about what it means to be a, a progressive foreign policy professional and when we talk about uh, the, the, the true morals and values that underlie a progressive foreign policy and the progressive foreign policy camp, um, I think the crux of it truly is that progressive foreign policy offers creative and innovative ways to mitigating, resolving, and preventing violent conflict around the world. Um, and I think that peace building is at the center of that. Um, and I, I work for an organization called the Alliance for Peace Building, which is a nonpartisan network organization of over 110 organizations working on, uh, <laughs> working on the front lines uh, of conflict zones to prevent, mitigate, and resolve violent conflict around the world. Um, we do that through three main ways. One, policy and advocacy. Uh, two, learning and evaluation. And three, partnership building. Um, and I think as we really build out the future of progressive foreign policy, uh, we can do that through three main ways. That's through strategy, narrative, and public engagement. And peace building does all three of those. Uh, starting off with strategy. Uh, violent conflict is at a 30-year high. There are over 70 million people displaced around the world. And global conflict costs the global economy roughly $14 trillion a year. Um, those stats are astounding. And peace building is a cost-effective way to, to address all of that. Um, peace building is an innovative way for, for us to mitigate violent conflict nonviolently. Um, it is a way for us to address the root drivers of violence, um, and it is a way for, for us to teach people how to transform conflict in their communities in a nonviolent means. Um, and the exciting thing is that there's a growing bipartisan consensus in Congress that peace building is the right way forward. Um, just this past December, Congress passed and President Trump signed into law the Global Fragility Act of 2019. Um, what the GFA, the Global Fragility Act, does is it reorients U.S. foreign assistance towards fragility uh, countries and in conflict prevention work. It authorizes $1.15 billion for this, um, and AFP led a bipartisan 67-member coalition with Mercy Corps in advocating for the Global Fragility Act. And what made us successful is keeping our messaging about peace building as a bipartisan, technocratic, and effective, cost-effective way to prevent, mitigate, and resolve violent conflict. Um, second is narrative. Uh, not only the narrative of around the global war on terrorism, not only is it the securitized narratives that have not been questioned, and not only is it the way policymakers, policy professionals talk about narrative, but it, uh, talk about war and peace, but it's about the way our society talks about war and peace, right? Um, if we look at our TV shows, our movies, um, the way that American wars are depicted on the TV shows shows it almost heroic in a sense, right? Like when little kids are sitting and watching these TV shows, when we are sitting and watching them with our families as foreign policy professionals, we see the way that the war on terror is depicted. It's xenophobic. It, it, it creates a heroism and idealistic version of war and peace, which makes us, the general public, um, not question the, the securitized approaches that we have towards foreign policy and war in general. Um, 
I was babysitting four of my young boy cousins this past weekend, um, and a lot of their time is spent playing video games. Um, and I don't know how many of you have played uh, Grand Theft Auto or Call of Duty. Can I get a show of hands? Yeah. Um, so <laughs> exactly. So when you look at these video games that these young boys are playing, I mean, they pretend to be soldiers and these convicts running around the streets and and shooting people, but they it, and it makes them grow up idealizing that. Um, and with the Afghanistan war, for example, it started um, over 18 years ago and a lot of the young men and women that we are deploying don't even know why that war was started to begin with. But they have been, they've been grown up with this idea that we are in these wars um, to, to stop the bad guys. And they grow up thinking that the way that you do it in Call of Duty, um, that it takes away the human stigma of war. And I think when we talk about the narratives around foreign policy, we also need to talk about the narratives that we as a society have. Um, and I think third, and I think this is probably the most important aspect of the future um, of progressive foreign policy and peace building, is that we need to mobilize new advocates for peace building and new advocates for foreign policy, primarily youth and primarily diaspora members. Um, starting with youth, there are currently 1.8 billion young people around the world. That is the largest number of young people this world has ever seen. And the fun fact in all of that is that a lot of these young people live in conflict zones. Afghanistan, for example, has a 63.7% youth population, and some African countries it, it go way beyond those stats. Um, so when we think about meaningfully engaging young people who are the future of those countries and the future of the world and future policymakers, we need to really think about the challenges that they're facing on the ground. Um, I mean, if you look at social and political movements in human history, and right now, they are all catalyzed, led by, um, and strategized by young people on the ground. Um, young people not only know what it, it feels like to, uh, to, to deal with violent conflict or with conflict in their home countries, but they, um, they understand what needs to be done to transform that. And if we neglect young people, if we do not include them in conversations like we're having today, um, they are going to turn towards other means of, of, of being heard, and that is violence, and we don't want that. Um, the Alliance for Peace Building is excited to be working with Congress on a new bipartisan way to engage young people, and that's going to be through something called the Youth Peace and Security Act, which would create and it would pin the United States as the first country in the world to establish a strategic policy addressing and engaging young people in peace and security issues. Um, the Youth Peace and Security Act would not only one establish that policy, it establishes a fund to support youth programming around the world out of USAID and State Department, um, and also establishes a youth advisory council to actually bring young people into conversations just like this. And when we look at political candidates, right, talk about, you know, Buttigieg being that millennial who's who's really pushing these ideas forward, but we can also look at Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren who are just engaging young people in a way that we've never, that we haven't seen in a really long time. Um, the ICRC just released a report saying that 75% of millennials believe that most wars could have been avoided. And if we think about millennial engagement in this current election, um, we also need to think about the fact that most millennials are out of voting age. So when we are having these conversations and politicians, are, and candidates especially, are talking about foreign policy, um, they really need to change the way we talk about progressive foreign policy to attract the young millennial voters. 
Um, back to diaspora members. Um, I'm a member of the Afghan diaspora. Uh, my family came to the United States shortly after the Soviet invasion of 1979. And I grew up with not only the after effects of intergenerational trauma, but also a confusion around why my home country, the United States, that did so much for my family, was engaging in war um, in my parents' home country. And that not only mobilized me and encouraged me to go into the foreign policy world, but it made me realize that it is really up to diaspora members to get up and say enough is enough when it comes to endless wars and when it comes to the United States engaging in wars abroad. Um, for example, and it's not just the Afghan diaspora, right? For example, right, just recently with the Iran situation, um, right after uh, Soleimani Khomeini was assassinated, the National Iranian American Council mobilized. They drafted petitions. They organized protests around the country. They called their members of Congress and asked them to say no to war with Iran. And guess what they did? They prevented a full-blown war with Iran um, within just a few days. And I think when we talk about deploying diplomats um, and sending peace builders and foreign policy professionals around the world to hold dialogue um, and prevent violent conflict, we need to seriously think about how we are going to mobilize young immigrant Americans and people of color um, in these situations, because more often than not, they are the ones that are working in the hospitals, in the schools, sending money back home, um, and are dealing with the every single day effects of these large wars. Um, so to kind of wrap up uh, my points in this conversation, I think we as, as, as a policy community just really need to unpack strategy, narrative, and the engagement of the public. Um, and we need to do it through a peace building and a peaceful lens, which is the cost-effective bipartisan solution forward. Well, thanks for having me. Um, I'm not a policymaker, right? Uh, I'm an academic, and I only got involved in these debates, in part because Adam pushed me, <laughs> but in part uh, because I was really frustrated by the kind of quality of progressive foreign policy arguments in 2016, and particularly the sense that progressives were the ones who had no ideas and couldn't field good foreign policy arguments, and that kind of got under my skin. So I'm going to talk a little bit today primarily about the interplay of questions, some, questions, some of the questions that Trevor actually raised. One of them is the question of US primacy, and the other is the question of disagreements among progressives. Now, the left wouldn't be the left if it weren't fractured. And I'm sure it won't <laughs> surprise any of you who follow these debates to know that there are very big, uh, fairly intense, fairly nasty fights among certain camps that we might broadly call progressive, particularly between people more on the sort of uh, left liberal side of progressivism and those on the more kind of socialist left side of progressivism. Um, it's interesting because uh, the Sanders campaign, as far as I know, has sort of all of those people in it. And so they've been a little bit more insulated. But if you see the attacks, for example, on Warren, they have to do with the perception that Warren is more on the kind of left liberal side of progressivism on foreign policy. Uh, we might get a chance to talk about that. I'll just give you my takeaway in that, which is I think there's a lot of confusion with the aesthetics of political performance and with rhetoric on the one hand and with actual policy positions. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, but uh, we'll just leave that there. So. Within progressive foreign policy thought, it's, like, it's pretty easy to talk about the things that everybody agrees on. Everybody agrees 
to one degree or another that there needs to be rebalancing in, in U.S. positions on Israel-Palestine. Everyone agrees that the United States should use force less. Everyone agrees that should come with some sort of reductions in defense spending. Uh, everyone agrees that the United States should do more to, to tackle climate change. Uh, everyone agrees broadly in, in, in s that notions of international equity and justice have to play some sort of a bigger role right, in, in foreign policy, or at least we need to restore the role that they've maybe traditionally played in some contexts. Uh, but beyond that, there's a lot of disagreement. And I'm still, you know, Adam talked about this distinction he draws between uh, sort of liberal progressives and solidarist progressives. And he sent a draft of this piece around. And like all, before we, we got together, and like all good typologies, this has really gotten under my skin and I've been thinking about it for a while. Um, and if you listen to what Adam's, and I think it's a great uh, actually way of thinking about a lot of these debates, and I really hope it gets published soon so that everybody can read it. Uh, but I think there's one kind of assumption in it that I want to unpack a little bit, right? Which is that um, Adam, when he talked about it, and even in the piece, there's sort of an assumption that solidarism produces an anti-primacy or an anti-hegemonic stance, right? So if you're on the solidarist wing, you're much more likely to be suspicious of US leadership as a concept, to see it as imperialism, to see it as coercive and to see it as morally illegitimate. In fact, the root of most of the problems that the United States has faced, if at least not since the end of the Cold War, then, then possibly since 1945, right? Um, and then on the one hand, the liberals are the ones who, because they believe in universal values and promotion of those universal values, tend to be a little bit less interested probably in listening to voices from uh, places outside of the United States, um, or at least assume that those voices are along for the ride they tend to be more comfortable with primacy and hegemony. And this is also some of the tenor of the debate that you see about kind of between people who are arguing why Sanders is better than Warren or Warren is better than Sanders on foreign policy. And I think that that's empirically correct. It is entirely correct that right now, solidarists tend to be anti-hegemonic in their thinking, and liberals tend to be more comfortable with something like hegemony in their thinking. But I don't think it's analytically or logically required for that to be the way in which views are distributed. Uh, and I think that matters for reasons that I'm about to get to. So the access that I think I would add to this if it's not logically or analytically required is an access that I think gets a lot more attention in these debates. It's almost too easy. It's low-hanging fruit, which is this debate about US hegemony or US leadership, right? So by and large, uh, you can have a position that says the United States ought to restore it's full, full spectrum primacy of the type that people believe it had in the late 90s. Um, and that's usually accompanied by advocacy of very large defense budgets, all the way to thinking that the United States should largely, if not withdraw from the world, just give up on the leadership game, game right? You know, sort of, we should have a world of sovereign, equal states, uh, and the United States should engage with that without sort of asserting its asymmetries of power, and in fact, should demobilize some of its asymmetries of power. And that's why you get a natural affiliation between solidarism and liberalism in these debates. Now, when I listen to these debates uh, in the progressive Twitter, blog, whatever sphere, I'm sort of struck by a sense that I, I often feel like we're kind of revisiting debates from the 90s and early 2000s. And the reason I, and I, I think that there's actually a dangerous assumption of stability in those debates. Um, and I think the assumption of stability is dangerous for this reason. The United States is no longer a global hegemon. It's not going to be a global hegemon again. 
Uh, and the question is really whether it's going to engage in certain kinds of bids for regional hegemony and whether it's going to maintain the core of its security and economic system, right? That is the hegemonic system that existed more or less in the Atlantic community, parts of East Asia, and that predates the big expansion of liberal order in the 1990s. Um, the fact that the United States cannot, I think, go back, no matter how big our military budgets are, to the kind of hegemony that, um, that some people who are not progressives would like has certain implications for trade-offs in the way we think about this. So generally speaking, uh, for example, and I don't have, a, I, I have mixed positions on this, right? So I'm, I just want to emphasize some trade-offs that come from how we think about whether the U.S. should exercise hegemony and to what extent. So a lot of people who I think are most skeptical of American leadership, who think that it inevitably produces a form of neo-imperialism, to be crude about it, um, also want the United States to engage in really kind of heavily democratic socialist programs, right? So uh, some of the strongest advocates for Medicare for all for major wealth redistribution. Uh, and that sort of makes sense. And you think about the argument we should cut defense budgets and we should switch to that. But if you step back a second and you ask, why is it that the United States has been able to run high deficits for the last few decades? And why were people in the 1980s who were predicting that the United States could not have Reagan-style imbalances without destroying its economy, why were they wrong? Well, it's because of dollarization of the international economy. It's because the United States made very deliberate moves uh, as the Bretton Woods system collapsed to use its coercive power to force the dollar into the position of being a fairly unassailable, at least while the US propped it up, reserve currency. Right? So the US, Carla North, Norloff has written really good stuff about this. The United States threatened to withdraw security provision, threatened to exclude people from trading systems, from club goods, unless they adopted policies that made the dollar stay as the center of the global economy even after the end of the Bretton Woods system. Right? And because the dollar has that position, the United States is a soft budget constraint. We can run deficits without having huge traditional problems with inflation. Well, as U.S. hegemony continues to erode in the economic sphere, there's a question about what that soft budget constraint will look like and whether it will go away. If the United States doesn't want to engage in aggressive activity to maintain at least some degree of dollarization, then all of a sudden the conditions of possibility for domestic social welfare spending and domestic uh, socialism change radically. Right? And so it's not that you, know, you kind of have to be a hegemon to have democratic socialism at home. It's that because these things are dynamic and shifting and because they're interactions, we need to think about those trade-offs and how those trade-offs reflect progressive values. Uh, another example of this kind of issue, I think that Trevor raised at the beginning, is that if you're thinking in the 90s and the 2000s, and you're thinking the US is a hegemon, and the US cannot be trusted to use that international global hegemony for good because it uses military instruments too much. It uses coercion too much. And then you think about the early 2000s and you think about the Iraq war, you know, 500,000 at least excess deaths, um, hugely destructive of the region, hugely destructive to US standing, hugely destructive to a lot of people, which I think is the most important thing. Um, then you say, okay, well, you know, we got to remove the ability of the United States to do these sorts of things, right? And in removing that, you can say, well, we're going to be solidarists. We want to focus on kind of non-state movements and global, you know, get a kind of global glass, grassroots movement going, which we, I think is great. That's fine. Um, but what are the conditions of possibility for that in a world where China is rising and where Russia is reassertive? 
Right? We know, for example, that Russia has decided that the most effective way to counter U.S. hegemony uh, within the sort of core of U.S. hegemony is to insert itself as a broker in support of uh, far-right populist movements and culturally conservative movements, heavily anti-progressive movements, and is throwing some amount of resources, some amount of disruptive capacity behind them. The U.S. is actually domestically funding a lot more of those, <laughs> right, um, out of dark money in the United States. But nonetheless, you know, we have anti-progressive powers on the rise. So in an environment where anti-progressive powers on the rise and are pushing anti-progressive positions and sometimes underwriting and supporting anti-progressive movements, you can't simply sit back, sit back and say, well, we're just going to let global solidarity work because you need to have similar kinds of resources behind state resources behind forwarding those types of movements. Um, and these aren't easy questions to answer because we know also that the critique is right. The empirical record of the United States when it exercises leadership is not great. Uh, the third, at least when it comes to you know, sort of the last 20 years. Right? The third thing is this is obviously an issue in climate change. Right? So I have arguments with people who I think are on the sort of the far side of the retrenchment debate. And I think they have a very respectable position and they may be right. Uh, but when they talk about climate change and U.S. policies and climate change, these are policies that require U.S. leadership. They require U.S. to put resources and pressure behind global multilateral cooperation. Mm -hmm. So the question is, how much the other stuff of hegemony, how much military power, how much economic power, how much economic coercion, how much uh, weaponization of interdependence, how much cutting off from the U.S. financial system, do you need to be able to exercise leadership that moves other states in the direction that you want in climate change, right? We don't have an answer to that, but the answer to that, I think, but the fact that that's even a question, or the fact that we have to pose that as a question, I think, illustrates the kind of trade-offs that we face on the progressive side. Um, because I make these arguments, I'm often seen as being like this stealth neocon pro-primacy person. I want to say <laughs> that I'm not. I just think that we need to think very hard about those um, trade-offs, and I think fundamentally. I have to have, like, I don't have a good way to end this. So I'll just sort of say that a lot of these debates, um, I think, are a little bit too focused on where the United States was in the 1990s and the 2000s and thinking that's going to last forever, even though that moment is already passed. Mm -hmm. right? um, but there are a set of other historical analogies that are in play. And, and which of those analogies we think are, are the best analogies have, and I don't think any of them are great analogies, but which ones are better analogies? but have really profound implications for how you think about progressive foreign policy. So is this the late 19th century? Is the United States the United Kingdom? And is China Wilhelmite Germany? If that's your analogy, you know, the United States is a weary titan, overcommitted, while another more, a state that's bound for a certain type of military revanchism and aggressionism is rising, that has certain kinds of implications, right? Um, and also how you go wrong and get war, right? The second thing is, are we, uh, are we, of course, looking at a new Cold War? Right? Are we looking at a multi-spectrum ideological conflict where if we push sort of progressive values into the center of foreign policy, are we feeding uh, people who want to have a Cold War with China as, you know, because they're Cold Warriors and because that gives you big defense budgets and all those other sort of classic critiques of the left? Well, if you think we're on a brink of a cold, new Cold War, then that's going to be, that's going to balance your concerns. Do you think we're in the interwar period? Right? And the United States is one power, increasingly one power, although first among equals, or at least two among equals, right? top two among equals, in a world where you have um, ideological forces that are playing out at the transnational and subnational level, crypto-fascist, uh, 
far-right, progressive, liberalizing forces, and that this is the kind of problem we're dealing with, then that's a very different world and implies very different things for progressive values. And I think while none of those analogies are going to be perfect, it's better to be thinking about those analogies than it is to thinking about U.S. power solely in terms of the United States being a colossus astride the world, which is unassailable, because that moment is done, and it's not coming back. Fantastic. All right. All right. Trevor? As, as <laughs> promised, I, I'm going to, where to start? Um, so I, I'm just going to lob, lob one, one tough, tough question to you guys. Um, imagine that your dream comes true and one of the progressive candidates wins the election this fall and come next January is sitting down with his or her foreign policy team and says, all right, folks, it's time to get stuff done. And then um, they find out that um, they, they really can't do anything because of all the inertia in the foreign policy establishment. There, there was a provocative piece in today's uh, National Review online, in fact, the title of which is, All Presidents Are Doves Before They're Elected. <laughs> right? And I think this is something that you know, I know we here at Cato have, have thought a lot about, and, and others as well. Um, you know, Patrick Porter had a great article in International Security about this. Uh, Trump came in breathing fire, but, but, you know, and he's done some things you might not like, but how different is foreign policy really under Trump compared to how different you thought it was going to be? So my question to you guys is, why is a progressive president going to be able to create progressive foreign policy? Right? If, they have to make, if, they, if they have to give up most of what they want to get something, what would it be? All right. Uh, <laughs> um, clearly, we were not given the questions beforehand. Uh, so I think the type of change that I'm talking about um, to achieve a progressive foreign policy that's truly reformational and radical at its core um, would take, it's a generational change is what I'm talking about. And so if there was a progressive elected, what I think they should really focus on to lay the foundation for that type of change is really how they can address the institutions and structures in the United States, in the international arena, to then set up for that change. Um, the reality is, is that uh, the example of the Obama administration, when President Obama wanted to take um, or give the Pentagon sole authority over drone strikes, for example, the reality was is that the CAA didn't want to give up that power, maybe at the bureaucracy they did, but not at the top tier political level. And so there wasn't really a way to, for that president to undermine that institution's authority and have that fundamental change, which based on what I'm talking about is like a small change <laughs> at the end of the day. Um, and so I think one way to do this is that you really focus on democratizing foreign policy. And that means bringing in regular people into the debate, having these increasing transparency on use of force questions, on what different tools the United States should be investing in, not only here at home, but also abroad, and really um, ensuring that any domestic debate is also a debate about foreign policy. And this is where I think really focusing on the climate crisis is critical, because this is not something that the United States can address internationally if it's not leading by example here at home. And that fundamental addressing it here at home would require real structural change through anti-corruption and attacking inequality and these other things that not only drive um, 
domestic policy from being decided at the elite level also drives foreign policy from being decided at the elite level. And so how can we um, really not only bring in regular Americans, but also the people who our policies impact around the world to then have a say and voice at the table. And I don't think we've really done that or seen that in the past. And so that would kind of be a core focus to then um, having pressure to foment the institutional change, even if the institutions don't actually want to change themselves. It's really a wonderful question and, and a critical You're one. Just being nice. No, 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 no. It's one that we've got to think a lot, a lot, a lot about. There are some things that are really standing in, in the way of progressives, right? Certainly Republican obstructionism, um, bureaucratic inertia. Here's a big one. The fact that there just aren't that many progressives numerically. It's hard to staff a progressive administration mm -hmm. with like-minded officials. And so you don't want to, if you're trying to cut defense spending, you don't want to end up having to fight your secretary of defense in order to get it done. It'll never get anywhere. It's not possible. And so part of the challenge is for a progressive president is to staff an administration with like-minded figures who believe in the principles and who believe in the goals. There are so many progressives that stop at the water's edge who believe sort of in progressive or liberal uh, you know, social policies or economic policies here at home, but sort of act like normal centrists on foreign policy, that's not going to help you get it done. So, but there are some things working in progressives' favor. The Trump administration has eviscerated the government. And there's so much rebuilding that has to be done that it provides a lot of latitude to make a great deal of change. Another is that progressives are clearer about their principles, right? So Warren especially has been, has been leading a debate about cutting defense spending. The Sanders campaign supports the goal also. But when you've set that expectation from the start, along with all of these other priorities, you'll end up sort of flooding the space and making it difficult for Republicans to sort of care about or obstruct everything. Hopefully, you can get quite a lot done in your first certainly 100 days or two years in office. The other advantage is progressives are inherently committed to st structural change. You know, that's part of the definition that Kate and I gave of a, of a progressive. And so they're committed to using these tools or levers that other presidents have been skittish to or shied away from. So things like much more work through executive authority, much more work through uh, sort of disciplining uh, a policy process that has been uh, you know, that other presidents have deferred to. So Kate brought up the drone strikes example. Another great one is Obama's nuclear policy. Obama had pretty progressive instincts on nuclear policy and essentially sort of appointed a range of people, especially at the Pentagon, who didn't share his principles and lost so much momentum and made very few changes to the structure or the function of the US nuclear arsenal. Uh, a, a progressive president I think comes in with a very different mindset, which is that we're going to get it done. Uh, you know, and it's it, it's going to cause friction. It's going to cause a lot of problems. But it's that unabashed urgency that I think really distinguishes a progressive, and hopefully that translates into some uh, sort of practical advantages. I will just sort of recap these very excellent points into appoint a leadership team that matches your agenda. Neither Obama yeah. nor President Trump did that or yeah. have done that. Yeah. Do not make, do not believe that the bureaucracy is your enemy or that it can't get things done. It absolutely can. 
When you push it, keep it at arm's length, when you talk about it in the negative terms that we see in today's political environment, when you assume that they are going to thwart you in every possible way, they absolutely will. Don't treat them that way. Treat them as though they are ally in this and they like to push paper. We're really good at it. Um, and to Kate's point, I think it's such a great point to bring in transparency and public debate into a lot of these issues. Closing Guantanamo would have been one where a lot of the debate was kept behind closed doors for good reasons and for really bad reasons too. People supported the president's decision to close Guantanamo. They didn't hear about all the challenges that they were having for months until it came out through other people's terms, not the president's. Same thing with Afghanistan. The Afghanistan debate came out um, at the beginning of the Obama administration very much on General McChrystal's terms about what the other options were, not on President Obama's terms. These debates do get to sensitive issues, but they don't all have to be. And the president should be the one who is setting the tone for that early and frequently and talking about the cost and risk. That's something that's got to be affiliated with progressive foreign policy is talking about how things are hard. Ending the endless wars is not going to be something that happens on day one. It's going to be, ha I, I don't know what the date is going to be, but talking more openly about what that looks like and the risks that are associated with it and why it's difficult to do over time, I think will be to the advantage of a progressive president and not ultimately hurt their agenda in the long run. Um, good question, and thank you to all of you for, uh, for explaining that. I, I, I'm going to come back to peace building. Uh, peace building is a bipartisan, cost-effective way to mitigate, resolve, and prevent violent conflict around the world. Um, in fact, two of the biggest and first peace building bills and pieces of legislation passed in Congress were signed by President Donald Trump. Um, that's one, the Women, Peace, and Security Act of 2017, which uh, establishes a US strategy for meaningfully including women in peace negotiations. Uh, more and more research shows that when peace negotiations and peace processes are inclusive, they are more likely to be sustainable. Um, and the fact that he signed that and it went through a, 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 a Republican majority Congress is, is exciting. And I think that a progressive uh, president could do the same when it comes to inclusive peace processes. Second, the Global Fragility Act. We pushed through a Republican-controlled House, um, and it was added into the Consolidated Appropriations Package just this past December. And it actually established, it, it authorized $1.15 billion in conflict prevention work. And if we can move large sums of money in, in, a, very, uh, in a very, very heated atmosphere during the time of impeachment, um, I think that a progressive president could easily create more peace-building bills um, and create bipartisan consensus towards nonviolent resolution of conflict. I don't have better answers than these, so maybe we should open it up. All right. Well, you guys have been patient. <laughs> nice. Let's um, get, uh, do we have our question uh, answerer? People there, they are. Okay, so let's... Uh, Let's come down here. Let's get this fellow right next to you in the glasses there to your right. Oh, that's fine. Sure. Oh, there you go. Just tell us your name and please ask your question in the form of a question, just like Jeopardy. Sure. <laughs> Hi. Uh, my name is Daniel Siebel. I'm a master's student at Georgetown University Security Studies Program. Um, so my question is, it seems like a lot of this conversation is going to be talking about like radical domestic change in institutions, values, et cetera. My question is about like, what about international institutions, right? Like if these are sort of established and ingrained with these inherent, like, you know, power imbalances that are in, in unjust. How are you going to change that over time? I understand this is a generational problem, but what sort of barriers may we face from the institutions we originally founded that we thought would promote the same ideals we're trying to do now in the future? Do you want to take multiple questions? I, yeah, one idea. Let's take, let's take a few. Here you go. Let's, let's, let's grab this one here. Uh, thank you. I'm Leon Weintraub, a retired member of the U.S. 
diplomatic service. What I've heard for the most part was discussions of the type that typically go around the seventh floor of the State Department from the policy planning office meant to influence the secretary and the deputy secretary. I think, but foreign policy really happens when the rubber hits the road. And I'd like to ask, for example, about what kind of instructions from uh, a, a Biden consensus establishment, such as our opening speaker mentioned, or a Buttigieg, Buttigieg administration, or a progressive internationalist warrant, what would they send out if you have, for example, the demonstrations in Tahrir Square in Egypt a number of years ago, hundreds of thousands of people. What kind of instructions or guidance would go out to them? How would these administrations be different? What would they do differently? Or if you want to look forward, imagine, we, I hope it doesn't happen, the northeast of Nigeria, increasingly threatened by Boko Haram. What happens if a state government falls there and the government of Nigeria a, a large power in Africa is threatened and asks for our help. How would these three, the, the, the Biden, the Buttigieg, and the progressives, how would they differ in what kind of instructions or guidance they'd send or, or statements the president might make? All right, good. All right, let's get, let's get someone from over here. Let's, let's go to the fellow with his hand up in the, on the side over there. That's Emerson. Hey, Emerson. Hey, Emerson Brooking, Atlantic Council. Um, I wanted to ask about the perceptual and political battle that a progressive president will continue to face after they take power. Um, let's say we begin to enact progressive measures and begin to significantly change foreign policy. What happens, uh, somewhat to the previous gentleman's question, what happens when there's a first exogenic crisis, uh, terror attack, some sort of major event which hundreds of whistleblowers in the bureaucracy or uh, people outside of power looking in will be able to say, you know, we told you so, and then the pushback. What are ways that a progressive president can get out ahead of this almost inevitable political struggle as we try to enact these visions? Thank you. All right, well, three is as many as I can remember at once. So we have international institutions. What kind of guidance are we gonna give the poor state folks out and about when stuff happens? And then how is a progressive president going to deal with, I told you so? Dan, institution? Don't be shy. Um, so uh, let, me talk, let me just tackle the institutions thing. I mean, clearly the current global governance regime has massive democratic deficit problems, right? And these have plagued everything from the European Union to the United Nations. Um, I do think though at some level, this is where I, I sort of, I mean kind of, we gotta, we gotta kind of get with the program, right? I mean, this is a great question, but so if you look at the kind of regime complex, right, or the multilateral, the sort of current multilateral environment, my first concern would not be uh, the United States has too much power in those institutions, right? First of all, that wouldn't be my concern because the Trump administration has been at the day-to-day -day level kind of pulling us out, right, and conceding authority, and now is trying to get back in and figuring out, oh, wait a minute, that wasn't such a good idea, right, to not have our foreign policy people doing things there. Uh, but secondly, just because we've seen an enormous explosion in the number of international institutions, multilateral fora, and they're not coming from the United States. They're coming from China primarily, uh, and to some degree Russia, and then some degree regional. And so 
though that there's sort of a self-correction problem because the United States has asymmetric authority, de facto authority in these institutions to the degree that it is the only patron out there, right, who can provide development assistance, who can provide these other things. That's not the case anymore, right? So there, so countries in the world have exit options. They have alternatives. They have alternative ordering principles they can go to. So I don't look out there, and my first concern isn't, you know, the United States uh, needs to concede more power for its own sake. My concern is how do we deal with this increasingly complex multilateral environment? And some of that may be trying to re-engineer some bargains to bring states into some of the older institutions of order to make them more attractive. So you can talk about voting rights on the World Bank or whatever, but it's complicated, right? There are reasons why states don't necessarily want that. So it's just kind of not my first concern right now. If I look at that landscape, I think the big concern is this massive evolution uh, in, in the global governance structures and how, and, and where, you know, how, how do we act, how do we deal with that, right? Um, and I think recommitments in general are the way to, to the first way to, to tackle that, right? Getting back involved, putting more money into, into the institutions that, that actually ones where we have more influence. Um, I will rapid fire through all three of these. That's my goal. Um, on the international institutions question, um, you know, I'm not, I don't have like a vision for what an international governance system should look like necessarily, but I do think that if we want to determine the rules of the road as we say we do on the international level, we have to first hold ourselves accountable to those norms and rules that we say we want to uphold. So something like uh, joining the International Criminal Court, joining the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, if we want to hold China accountable for, um, you know, buzzing your ships in the South China Sea. Like, there's a lot of things that if we just actually decide to hold ourselves accountable to the same standards that we talk about, um, I think we'd have a lot more leverage to then build multilateral coalitions to address what we see as harmful behavior to international stability and peace. Um, on... The question about instructions for the State Department, I'm grateful to have written about this. Um, I think that uh, the uprisings in Tahrir Square were a and around the um, Arab Middle East were a key opportunity for the United States to actually reevaluate what its national interests were in the region. Um, and it had the opportunity to um, redetermine its values to be specifically aligned with the aspirations of the people. Um, the Obama administration had a lot of, in particular Hillary Clinton, had a lot of great rhetoric about supporting democracy and human rights for the people in Tahrir Square, for the people in Bahrain who are rising up um, against a very repressive regime. And then we did nothing to change or use our leverage with those countries, which primarily is in the form of security relationships, to actually put our words into action. And so we, the Arab Spring is not over. Um, and so there is a remaining opportunity to do that reevaluation when another uprising starts. Um, on the case of Boko Haram, I would go back to the fact that the challenge of violent groups that perpetrate terrorism does not have a military solution. We need to start looking at what are the root drivers of violence um, that actually cause people to pick up arms, that cause instability within national government structures and cause illegitimacy within those structures. Um, if we actually want to prevent um, those types of groups from gaining leverage with a population. Um, and then finally, on the political dynamic question, um, I think that we have to actively address the fear mongering that goes on in our politics. And as Lauren was saying earlier, I think we need to be 
really transparent and honest about what level of risk we're willing to take to actually have freedom in this country and not live in a, a garrison state, as some want to respond to that with. And that hasn't really been done. Um, there, we're starting to see kind of aspects of that, but I think that's why the other side wins all the time, because we're not willing to directly address what is going on in our political system. Yeah, Emerson, I, I think Kate's exactly right about your question. Um, a terror attack is a possibility under any president, right? And it's not necessarily, it may or may not be the fault of a, of a particular administration. Um, I think part of what progressives want to do with foreign policy is, is to recognize that these kinds of perturbations or tragedies can't derail us from our objectives to sort of build a safe and stable world and a just and equitable polity at home. And so you saw many progressives articulate an alternative, um, you know, sort of concept for a response to 9-11 or other terrorist attacks that say, treat it as a law enforcement problem, rely on sort of allies and partners, don't over-militarize the situation, respond, you know, as, you know, as necessary, but be sort of, exercise discretion about how you um, respond militarily in order in part to keep these sort of pro progressive priorities in track, on track. Ho hopefully that, you know, a progressive president thinks about it that way. Uh, I think that's part of the benefit and the design of a progressive foreign policy. I'll also note that this point about, um, Daniel's point about international institutions is very well taken. Um, it's part of the DNA of, the, of progressive foreign policy thought to be internationalist and institutionalist. You know, it, it, it evolved through sort of Wilsonianism, which itself had a very, very dark side that was racist and, and uh, imperialist, and so barely classifies as progressive. But progressives in the post-war era sort of pulled on some of, the, of those strains in developing sort of world federalist proposals that helped give rise to, rise to the United Nations. It's interesting that we don't hear as much about those kinds of methods and mechanisms in the current conversation. I think there has to be a conversation about reforming the UN, uh, both for effectiveness's sake and in terms of having a partner that can authorize multilateral uh, action. Uh, it's something that we can't uh, leave behind. Let's get one more really good question. How about right here in the second row? My name is Mohammed Kader. I am a member of the United Nations Major Group for Children and Youth, and I really appreciated your point on uh, peace building, uh, specifically as a unique way to approach a lot of challenges. Uh, my question specifically is, uh, given the you know prospect of 1.8 billion youth uh, and rising uh, throughout upward to the point of 2050, um, we are experiencing a lot of new phenomenons that are very 21st century related. Uh, that really break from the Cold War and post-war era, uh, specifically things like youth bulges um, across Africa and Southeast Asia. Also things like youth unemployment, where in Jordan, for example, 60% of the youth are unemployed. And a lot of that is tied, especially in Africa, tied to uh, patriarchal systems like land access and stuff like that. So my question is, regardless of any administration, how do you view that a how do you view that tying a convincing vision for foreign policy um, in regards to um, our values and ideals, um, 21st century related? 
how are we able to not only influence government to reform uh, in regard to rising youth population globally, uh, where it's 1.82 billion almost. Um, so how do we, I guess my question is- What about the young people? Yeah, so, what about right? the young people, but also, <laughs> but also with the Biden camp, with the traditionalist approach, where it's more of isolating young people out of the conversation. Mm -hmm. How do we effectively bring in those people? I know there's the Youth Peace and Security Act. Uh, there's also uh, our role in the UN with engaging young people. Uh, okay, let's, let's give these guys a chance to respond. So, Mina, you want to start us off? I mean, what about the young people? Yeah. Sure. You're one of the young people, for goodness <laughs> sake. I am. Um, that's a really good question. Um, I think when we talk about global fragility, solving war, fighting violent extremism. Um, we need to talk about the issues that young people are facing in these conflict zones and in the United States as well. Um, oftentimes, when I talk about youth and when we talk about youth on a global landscape and in a US policy space, we're talking about people between the ages of 15 and 29. Um, and what makes young people different than adolescents and young adults is that youth are stuck in this weighthood phase where you know they have an education they're still trying to get an education they don't really have a solidified career they're still looking to get married they're not settled down um, and when they are in conflict zones uh, like Afghanistan or Nigeria uh, where unemployment rates are high and there are no means of uh, of connection or, or, or community, they turn to violence as, as a means to get that, to get a sense of belonging and to get a roof over their heads and to have a, an income. Um, and so when we talk about solving wars and, and we talk about global fragility, we need to really think about how we are going to address the problems that young people face. Um, and on top of that, again, inclusive peace processes are more sustainable and successful when when young people, minorities, and women are involved. Um, so I'm going to come back to Afghanistan, for example. If you have a 63.7% youth population and you're having a peace process ongoing with just Taliban forces in the US government, excluding women, excluding a majority youth population who completely disregards extremist ideology, you are disengaging and you are com you are basically undermining your own peace process. Um, so when when we do talk about um, holding other governments accountable, um, I think again we need to preach what we need to preach by example. So passing the Youth Peace and Security Act and establishing a, a foreign policy strategy in the United States to include youth, um, and two, we need to we need to take advantage of the fact that there is already uh, international. Um, agreement in engaging young people. So the UN Security Council Resolution 2250 um, was passed in 2015, which establishes, again, that youth are able to be catalysts for peaceful social and political change. Um, so Kate, as you were mentioning earlier, the United States needs to sign on to specific uh, ideals like that. So I hope that answered your question. Can I have one last closing point? Okay. Um, so to address both this question, but also some of the other ones, uh, one thing I think that we need to have in mind with regard to, I don't want to say the, the Biden Buttigieg, but some elements of the democratic foreign policy establishment look at our current national security institutions that have been decimated by President Trump's administration and say, we need to rebuild those effectively as they were. Mm -hmm. All the people who left, all the processes that went away, all of the policies that have been taken away, we need to reinstitute those. And that's a valid perspective. 
I see this, and I think many others see this, as an opportunity to look at these and say, did we hire the right kind of people to begin with? Are there barriers to getting people who care about youth and peace building, for example, into the State Department and elsewhere, or getting folks who were born in Afghanistan a security clearance, or other barriers that prevent us having a more diverse, progressive, or just different kind of foreign policy establishment? This is a time right now over the next year to be thinking deeply about these issues because from day one, if you don't have a plan to reinstitute, either reinstitute or reform fundamentally, you're not going to be able to do either one because momentum will take over. Things will just go on as they are right now. Excellent. All right. I'm, I'm going to call it there because we are so close that we're going to run way over if we take any more questions. <laughs> Let's have a round of applause for our wonderful panel.